Welcome to the Rising Laterally podcast. Each episode, you will learn something fascinating so you can bring big ideas to your small talk. Your growth is our growth. Listening to these episodes, subscribing to our weekly newsletter, engaging our posts on social media, and sharing our show with your friends and family is deeply appreciated as we work hard to expand this platform. You can also visit our page at buymeacoffee.com to contribute what you think the show is worth. To the folks who are taking this step, we can't thank you enough. Look for the link in our show notes for more details about how you can support and follow us. And now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Well, uh, look, let's actually talk about something that's near and dear to your heart. You, you form the national nonprofit Police to Peace, which unites police departments and communities around the country. It's designed to uplift and heal communities. Even though you have zero police family members, you have zero history of law enforcement or training or any of that. What drew you to that? Can you tell us more about it? Well, that's a great question. And thank you for asking. It relates to what we're talking about in terms of time. And so at the same time I was writing this book, I was thinking about things I'd like to do with my life to give back. I had been, I'd worked in business for many decades as a high technology CEO, working with small companies. But around the age of 50, I really decided I didn't want to work with companies that weren't socially accretive, that didn't Mm. give back. And as the Dalai Lama was famously paraphrased as saying in 2014, the Western world will be changed by women who do that Mm. because they're just going to put things, they're going to put away their old lives and be the weavers of society, reweaving things and bringing their skills. And their children are out of the home. And they're, if they're educated and they have skills to contribute, then they likely will. Well, that's what happened to me. And then going back to the book, what, what the book is all the time in the world really, really explores is the nature of time. But it explores this question. And that is, would you really care about time if you didn't care what it is that you needed to do now? The answer is no, you wouldn't care what time it is. And so there's a bigger spiritual question. What is it that's mine to do now? Mm-hmm. That's the question that's posed at the end of the book. So I was working as a, as a high technology executive, and I was wondering about things, and I had a vision, which I say openly. I was working in a Florida city, uh, and there was a beach there, and a police vehicle came on the beach, and I saw the words in a vision, peace officer, appear on a police vehicle spontaneously. And they weren't, quote, there, but they were there to me. Right. And while I was writing this book at the same time, I knew the question, if not me, who, if not now, when? And I thought to myself, well, that's a technology. It's a technology to introduce the words peace in, a, in huge letters on the sides of police vehicles. And this was 2016, 2017. So before what we're experiencing now, but quite frankly, we've had issues in policing for a very, very long time, as we all know. So I started to look into it. And what happened was it turned out to be a very effective technology for reframing police officers as peace officers to themselves, to the community, to unite our communities. Today, three years later, we're working in violence-torn communities all over the nation with peace officer in the police and sheriff's departments and bringing communities together. So it's really very fulfilling and quite timely, I guess you would say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so is that the goal is to have police officers be called peace officers or is there a separate process involved? I'm just curious because anyone listening might want to get involved and help out. I mean, what what, what is the end objective well, from where we are today? Here's the big idea. Police culture uh, should change to a culture based on what society now wants that is less in, that is less based in violence that is less based in uh, interventions, that is more peaceful, as though they are guardians. 
peace officer is the legal term for police officers in most states in the country. We've forgotten that. As oh, a wow. national culture, if police officers uh, become the framework, let's say that they are that on their uniforms, which we've done. They are that on their vehicles, which we've done. They are that on their badges. It changes them and it changes the community. So yes, national, po- national coherence around peace officer for the nation, I believe would transform policing forever. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm working to do. We're working to do. That's awesome. And so, so, so did I hear that right? That used to be the colloquial name for police officers as well. If you like, if we rolled back the clock generations, they would have been referred to in their communities as peace officers. Is that the case? Well, it, in some ways, policing is, has grown up very differently around the country. And, you know, in California and, and west of the Mississippi, it is uh, there. They were peace officers such as in the west. And east of the Mississippi, of course, they were there were before there were police officers. There were certainly groups which were charged with uh, with uh, controlling and sla- controlling slaves right, yeah. and working slavery. North of that, in the northern cities, it more it had to do more with the Industrial Revolution. With that said, mm-hmm. it's grown up differently around the nation. But most states, the legal term in the penal code in the law is peace officer. Really fascinating. Think about that. Judges yeah. are justices of the peace. Right. So let's return to the word which policing already is to yes. change the framework, change our minds and change police culture for the better. I love it. And thank you for being such a strong advocate. Um, I think that is fascinating and really interesting work. Uh, but let's dig into your book a little bit more, which is coming out on October 26th. It's called All the Time in the World, Learn to Control Your Experience of Time to Live a Life Without Limitations. And so... You know, you think about like a core issue in society right now, and it's the idea that people have lost their connectedness to time. It feels like time is flying. It feels like people can't believe how fast time flies. And so I just am curious around, is that the core issue that you were trying to hit on in this book? Well, it started before that, as you, as I mentioned with the story about a police to peace and, and peace officers. With that said, when we rolled into the pandemic and it caught people by surprise that we were really going to be home for almost two years. What I noticed was this, and that is before that, before stay-at-home orders, being busy was a badge of honor. I lived in New York at the time. So the badge of honor was, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. Dollars are minutes of the day, and I'm not going to waste one of them, right? And our schedules were our identities for many people. And that goes to many, almost all aspects of society, right? In terms of any profession. Pandemic hits. Now, almost two years later, here's how people feel, stressed out, burned out, bummed out, overwhelmed, and hopeless. I have a theory as to why, and it's exactly what you said, Jay, it is that people have lost their relationship to time, and people also believe that they will run out of time to do the things that they want and need to do. That's what's important. Why would you be bummed out if you weren't afraid? You're afraid that you won't have enough of, you won't have enough time. time, So the book is an antidote to that. Take back, before we get back to business as usual, take back your life. When you master time, you can master yourself. And that's what the book is about. You start the book by looking at time through two separate lenses. You think of time and reality itself, it seems, as one part physical and one part perception. There's so much in the book that unpacks that. But I'm wondering for our listeners, if you could kind of walk us through that dichotomy. Well, what I wondered was, and I am a meditator, as we chatted about a little bit before before this call, and that is, as a meditator, you you have a you get, start to grow a different view of reality, if you will, and certainly a different view of time. 
you may realize, as I did, about the incredible power of the mind, which can't be quantified. But then I noticed I also have a scientific background in economics, and economics studies the data that people generate in order to predict what people might do in the future and explain their behavior. So as a, da- as a scientist, here's what science would say. If you can't measure it, it's not real. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about your mind? Can you measure your mind? No. No, you can measure brain waves. So right. here's what the book does. It's, it's, it's the physics for where humans meet physical reality, right? It uses science to explore this question. Does how we show up in our minds for a situation affect physical reality in particular time? So it poses that question. And then because so many of us are steeped in science, you know, we've, we've had it all our lives. It's all over the media, et cetera, et cetera. It goes through all the scientific explanations for why time is not what we think hmm. and why time is actually an illusion. And that's Einstein's words, that time was an illusion, right? Hmm. And then it starts to suppose that if time is not what we think, and it is, there's a world, the quantum world of quantum mechanics, where we know, which we know exists, where we know fantastic things happen and we know that we can't see it or control it. What if that's the world we need to focus on? And that's where human thoughts and mind meet reality. And what if we could play with that? And then the book has practical exercises to apply this to your own life. Yeah. And sticking on that quantum theory aspect of this conversation, uh, as you've alluded to, it's definitely another way to experience time. It's it's how you say in the book, it's where time is less limited than we think. And I just think that's really fascinating because you start to ask questions like, where do thoughts come from? You start to ask us questions around like, how do we know what's real? And all of that kind of blends together. Um, just one fun fact, if we're talking about quantum theory, uh, on zeptoseconds. Uh, so scientists have actually measured the shortest unit of time ever. It's the time that takes uh, a light particle to cross a hydrogen molecule. That time is 247 zeptoseconds. A zeptosecond, for the record, is a trillionth of a billionth of a second or it's a decimal point followed by <laughs> 20 zeros and a one. So my point is that like scientists have you know, figured this out and it just goes to show that maybe time really is an illusion. It's not really what we're thinking about. They've basically eliminated time. If you're measuring it in such small intervals, let's think about time differently. Well, and what about this? What about if we're only constrained by the measurement instrument? What if there's a leptosecond and a septosecond, right? Which is even smaller because our instruments, and it is never, ever, ever quantified. We do like to measure things as humans, right? We like to explain things in terms of physical reality. But the truth is everyone's had this experience. Did I really just see that? Mm. Did that glass fall in slow motion? I was in a car crash and I I was able to maneuver myself and get out of the way. So was Don Miguel Ruiz. Who, um, who in the foreword to the book he so generously wrote, talks about when he was in medical school in, in Mexico City. Many, many stories. And in fact, back to police to peace, a friend of mine who's a police chief tells a story of slowed down bullets in a gunfight in LA, oh, yep. like the Matrix. Now, this is someone who's not given to, uh, to uh, you know, exaggeration. So what, how is this in our brains? And there's one more question, you know, back to the measurement, and that is, I do present the opposite side of the argument, which is, well, maybe your eyeball just isn't taking enough pictures because sca- you're scared. Mm-hmm. And so that's why time seems to slow down. Maybe your brain stops taking memories 
stops storing memories because you are so under duress or scared when you have these experiences. If that's true, why was Chief Jim able to step out of the way and protect himself? Why was Don Miguel Ruiz able to know where the steering column was? Right. Right. So people have these experiences and they're very vivid. And they know exactly why was why was my friend Bill able to drive to the side of the road like Mr. Magoo while other cars spun out of control yet all the time in the world. If it's an illusion that time is slowing down for us, why why do they have the ability to actually affect physical reality? The answer is we don't know. And but we will know. We certainly will. As you've just said, the septoseconds, there'll be more and more and more science which will reveal to us how incredibly powerful we really are and that we, we have the ability to control time so that we can lead lives of fulfillment of, of better, better lives of, of meaning and purpose. That's what I really want for people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, you're reading your book. It made me think a lot about the primacy of the material material world versus the primacy of consciousness and actually quote Max Planck, a famous German physicist who was the founder of quantum theory said, Quote, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness, which is just so much the inverse, I think, of how most people are taught to think about the world when you go back to science class, think of things kind of originating in the physical reality. And then the mind is this sort of side effect almost. But from his perspective, consciousness, perception, that sort of subjective view out on the world, like that's the starting point, it seems. It is. And that, you know, that's a controversial view, even though he's the founder of quantum physics, right? But so from the perspective of science, most scientists would say, if it's in your head, it's not real. Well, quantum mechanics uh, um, has theorems and and, uh, experiments, which are the opposite of that, of course, the collapse of the wave function through observation, right? That if it's in your head, it actually does collapse the wave function because you're the observer. But what if all of this is real? What if all of the things that we think of as not possible and even the supernatural and people who have had death experiences, I talk about this in the book, what if it's all rooted in time? What if there's a time shift, a phase? What if people who die aren't here in this time phase and they're a zeptosecond ahead of us or behind us? What if that's true? And as you just said, zeptoseconds, there's a theory that every moment births a new universe, the multiverse, right? Mm. So if every moment in time births a new parallel universe, every zeptosecond, then there's, there's an infinite number of parallel universes all marching forward every moment. It is a mind blower, as you talked about. Yeah. It's yeah, fun to absolutely. think about. <laughs> yeah. I hope people are sitting down, you know? <laughs> yeah. You, you've mentioned uh, near-death experiences a couple of times so far. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your experience in childhood? It was such a profound experience. Clearly, I could see that when I read it and it shaped your thinking on time going forward. It seems like you've returned to that event a lot throughout your life and continue to gather insight from it. It did. Well, thank you for asking. And a lot of experiences happened to us before the about the age of seven. They can be very formative. And one that I had was my parents were New Yorkers, but they ended up in Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona, back in the 60s, was actually one of the seats of the computer industry, which wasn't called that back then. Mm. But anyway, I was born there, and we were in a cabin in the mountains, which were uh, north and east of Phoenix. One summer afternoon, I was four, my sister was three, and we were jumping on a bed, as little girls would do, and the cabin, and the bed rolled away. We didn't realize it was on coasters. 
And I flew through the air through a plate glass window and was impaled. So I was impaled on a plate glass window in a remote town in northern Arizona, you know, almost 60 years ago and uh, and bled out at the time and was a doctor who came to the scene who happened to be in the area just told my parents, I don't think she's going to make it. But I remember it. So I remember the I remember the room. I remember the window. I remember being on the window, all of which is impossible, of course, because I'd been unconscious and impossible from a scientific perspective. And then the station wagon and the drive to the, the medical facility. And then the classic uh, story that people tell was seeing your, you're seeing your body from above. I was looking down and I could describe the room. And then suddenly I, the memory ends and I'm back in a, as a little girl full of life. But I was forever changed. I felt now memories are a funny thing. They grow and they change and they become informed by, by other experiences that happen after the memory. So was I always so interested in time? I don't know. Was I, did I always see everything as alive? You know, the grass and the trees and the animals, mm-hmm. little kids would do, but also the garbage. To this day, I thank the garbage because on some level it's alive too. And it served me well. So in any event, I go through my, t- I go through time and I grow up and I began to have experiences of the zone, right? Zone state, flow state, where time slows down. Now these experiences are much more common as athletes report them. Yeah. Bill Russell famously wrote a book about it. The members of an opinion, opinionated man. He didn't talk about it at the time because he mm-hmm. thought people would think he was crazy, but he could slow down the field so that he could play better. Now it's done commonly. They teach it. But I was experiencing this at six, seven, and eight, and I was using it in track and field. And also, I tell a story in the book of bowling, where I bowled nearly a perfect game while I was in the zone, Yeah. which zone I could not control. So then later on, I go through my life, and I don't tell anybody, as most people do not. One in 10 Americans, I believe, have had uh, near-death experiences or experiences like that, and they never, well, most never speak about them because they're afraid people will think them as weird or crazy. So I did the same. I kept my mouth shut and grew up and went through college, but then I became a meditator. And I realized that time is not what we think. You could sit in Zazen. You could sit in on your pillow. You could sit in TM mantra for what you might think is a moment and an hour could have gone by. Right. And of course, in the meditation that I, I'm taught, which is TM, they teach you to come out of it at 20 minutes just by thinking that it's 20 minutes and you do. So what's up with that? It started, it started to really pique my interest. But then books started to come out. The Zen, the, the Tao of physics, right? The quantum mechanics books. The, all of the books which related our human experience to this new field called quantum mechanics. And I started to really dive in. I dove into ancient mysteries in India and China and Kabbalah. And I dove into current modern thinking, which is quantum mechanics. And all of this is really where the book came from. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of even just stories of monks who they've found monks that are still in a meditative state, even though they've passed on. And it's, it just, it's interesting to me how that all works. But one thing I you mentioned was memories. I want to go back to that because why does it feel like we remember our childhood as lasting longer than our adult life? Well, it's an explanation, right? And I do, again, I always give the opposite side because we want to be fair about these theories. And then I have a theory. And so I would say that the theory that is given, which has been researched, is when you're young and your brain is very agile and growing and learning and doing all kinds of things, it is taking a lot of pictures. It's storing a lot of memories. And so summers, you know, seem 
seem to last forever and that stuff yeah. at you at the cabin and this and that, right? Oh my gosh, it's just wonderful. And just even the experiences with your friends, so vivid and you go on and on and you grow through life and you have more memories stored in this fabulous computer called your brain. And you get a little older and the brain functions a little less well and it stops storing memories. It starts skipping them. So, you know, uh, yesterday seems like, uh, you, you know, last year seems like yesterday or time is flying by sort of after you get to be 30, 40 or 50. And the theory is that your brain is, is storing less memories because it's capable of storing less memories. That may be true. And in fact, I'm not, I don't really go into the science of our memories in that sense. I go into the science of the experience of time for now, because yeah. we talked about it a little bit earlier. And that is the only reason people care what time it is, is because they care what it is theirs to do now. Mm-hmm. Right. If you had all exactly. the time in the world, you wouldn't care what you need to do now. So right. this yeah. book is about what do you do now? How do you take back your life after the pandemic? Right. And and create a life of fulfillment and joy so that because you have mastered time so that you can do all the things you want to do now. That's what I think is really important. hundred mm-hmm. percent aligned. And Jay, you probably agree with this. But uh, if you go back our third episode, we actually talked about if people can think about time differently, because we were trying to say, hey, instead of thinking of it as being a Tuesday, think about the event that took place, like, because at the end of the day, you're going to start reflecting, and you're really reflecting on memories, events, moments, you're not necessarily reflecting that it was a Tuesday or a Friday, that might happen. But more, more often than not, you're you're actually the reason the time exists is because an event or a moment took place. And so if you want to expand your perception of time, or if you want to think about it differently, fill your lifespan with as many memorable moments as you can, because those are the things that you'll end up reflecting on. So if you do that, you'll feel like you really lived a long, fulfilled life. And that goes back to being present in the moment. It does. And when you're present, you're intentional about things, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're enjoying the smell and the taste of the coffee, which you might just ordinarily pour down your throat and run out the door. Yeah. Doing all these things intentionally. And the reason we don't is that we don't feel we'll have enough time to do the things we want to do. Well, what if that's an illusion? That's not true. We do have the time to do all the things that we want to do. We need to be intentional about them. And then I have practices for actually expanding time in exactly the way you described. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the practices are extremely fascinating. I mean, they, they all have a tremendous amount of value. I'm curious, how did you build them? Uh, they're very unique. I've, I've done a lot of different meditation practices and breathing practices, but I haven't really seen any like the ones that you've designed. I'm curious what your approach was. Well, so would you have a, a moment for a quick exercise? Absolutely. Yeah. Could, could we do one on the air? Absolutely. Sure. 100%. Right, yeah. So <laughs> now, because I work in public safety, do not do this while driving. Do not close your eyes and do not go into a meditative state. Do this later. You can listen along with us, but you can do this later at home. And by the way, on my website, lisabroderick.com, you can download this exercise. And so this is an exercise for expanding time by by removing the fear that something won't happen in the future, because I think fear slows us down. Mm -hmm. So as you just mentioned, we're talking about meditation. People can sit comfortably, sit comfortably and close your eyes. And then while we do this, I'll always speak a little bit about the scientific aspect of what we're doing. So people accept that aspect and closing your eyes, of course, is starting to change your brain chemistry from, uh, from serotonin to melatonin relaxing, right? Now we can use breathing and you mentioned mindfulness. Of course, mindfulness uses breathing. 
But we're going to use a, uh, a breathing technique where you inhale through your nose, a regular inhalation, but exhale through your mouth, a long, slow exhalation, twice as long. And do this again, a regular inhalation in through your nose and a long, slow exhalation out through your mouth. Maybe seeing the air that's coming out of your mouth as white smoke, right? Using the visual aspect. What we're doing is we're triggering the parasympathetic nervous system in our brain to relax. In through your nose and out through your mouth, a long, slow exhalation. Now let's have some imagery. And with your next inhalation, see the number three appear in your mind's eye. Whatever way you see it is perfect for you. There is no right or wrong. You could feel it and have a sense of it. In through your nose and out through your mouth, the number three dissolves into the number two. Oh, we're counting down in time. In through your nose and out through your mouth, a long, slow exhalation, two dissolves into the number one. And in through your nose and out through your mouth, the number one dissolves into the number zero. My teacher in New York City, Dr. Jerry Epstein, a teacher of Western spirituality, would call this the time of no time. We are now in the now. This can be used at any time. You've completely relaxed, but you're focused. I call this focused perception. It's an awareness where we can be relaxed while at the same time focusing on one thing to the exclusion of all others. Now, sitting quietly, let's have some fun. Bring to mind something that you would really like to create for yourself, something satisfying and fulfilling. It could be mundane, like a check coming or, you know, the car being ready in time or your kids getting into a soccer game. It could be profound. I'd like world peace and policing and communities to get together. Whatever it is, live it as an experience, a movie, the visceral nature of it. See, feel, hear, sense, and know you're living this movie as wonderfully as you can. You're living this and every aspect of it. Keep this thought in mind. And now let's do one more thing. When I do this exercise, I always imagine how what I would like is for the benefit of all. It's for the benefit of everyone involved, the detriment of none. And I do this for this reason, and that is, if I'm wishing something for others, I'm never afraid it won't happen for me. And as we talked about a little bit before, I think fear rings like the clearest bell out of our minds, out of our per persons, and could slow down or stop or even get in the way of what we want. So let's remove that. This isn't for you. It's for everyone. The wonderful nature of the benefit of everyone involved. You're living this movie, you're living it, and now everyone bring to mind the fact that it's just happened. Oh my gosh, the check is here. Your kid got in, there's world peace. Whatever you're living, your movie, your wonderful experience, it's happened. It's accomplished fully and completely. There is nothing more to do. Hold this thought. Hold this experience, the sensation of nothing more to do. Now, don't ponder the details. Just live the experience of it. It doesn't matter who, what, when, where, why, or how. It just is. Live this. Now let's take this into our body. Amplify this feeling, right, of certainty. Right out the bottom of your feet, right into the earth, the giant earth, all the cells in the earth, filling it up, the earth, with the certainty that there is nothing more to do. This has happened. This experience is already done, finished, complete. Now moving back up through your body, going out through the top of your head on all directions at once, higher, higher through the building you may be in, into the sky. We move into the solar system and the galaxy and the universe and higher and higher and higher and higher. And then just 
let it go. Feel your body resting as the calmness comes over you. Nothing more to do. And when you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes. Thank you. How was that? You want to talk a little bit about what happened? It's quiet. <laughs> this feels Combi quiet. <laughs> Combining science and spirituality, right? So with the mm -hmm. front end with science, right? And there's brain science. And then there's focused perception. In hypnosis, it's called focused attention, focused awareness, where you are able to focus on something by doing biomechanical and brain exercises, such as watching a clock or something, to get to a place where you are focusing on something to the exclusion of all others. It's very suggestible. And what was the suggestion? That what you want to have happen has already occurred. Now combining it with the book, and that says, what if how we show up for a situation actually impacts reality, physical mm. reality, and in particular time? So now you're waiting for the check, but you know it all, in some sense, you know it's already here. Your child getting into the soccer club, that's happened. The wonderful thing you want to have happen, and it's for the benefit of none. You have no fear. Mm. You have just changed yourself, how you show up in the moment. And I think it has a tremendously more powerful impact than we really realize. And it all comes from within, which is the key, right? Everything is coming from within you. And that's how you perceive the, the universe around you. And really something that just occurred through that exercise that relates back to your book is this idea of shifting from thinking to feeling and how that can have a profound impact on your life. And it goes back to um, the, the idea that you were sharing around the brain waves that exist and the brain wave states. And that was an interesting part of the book. Um, if we can spend two minutes there, just the visual of going from beta brain waves to alpha brain waves, to theta brain waves, to delta brain waves and gamma brain waves, that transition from going to an alert mind to the focused perception mind is really fascinating, if, especially if you actually visualize the brain waves going from one phase to the next. Right. Well, in that exercise, as you know, we, we went from an alpha state, and as I describe in the book, it's, it's everyday wakefulness, right? It's not highly stimulated, but it's not meditative. And then we started to move into theta, the theta brainwave state, a more meditative brainwave state. How did we do that? Closing our eyes, relaxing, breathing. Then we began to focus on something. The theta brainwave state is, uh, uh, occurs in the brain when people are in a meditative state or doing repetitive things, Right the relaxed meditation mind. We were there for a little while, but I even feel a little altered having gone through the exercise with you yeah. into an even higher brainwave state, right? And there are higher, there are other brainwave states. There's Delta, which exists for REM sleep. With that said, you know, their Delta exists in the daytime and they've studied that as well. And, and gamma brainwave states, with, which are associated with Samadhi, which are associated with the unity experiences. I know these brainwave states because I've studied them and done these exercises with brain electrodes on my head, hooked up to a giant computer, which was telling me the brain waves I was experiencing, I was generating with my thoughts. So I know this works. Yeah. And what we want to do is we want to move up through our daily life and beta, beta exists, beta is a very frenetic, busy, keep a list in your mind and remember it 15 times and go over it. It's not a pleasant place to be, but it's highly alert, right? Hmm. So you're an alpha in your daytime, but you can move into theta. You could do the exercise we just did anytime. And I do do it during the day. I do it before calls like this. 
And of course, before the call like that we're having today, I, I did that exercise for myself. Mm. I will share something with you, and that is I don't sleep normally through the night. Mm. I sleep in a way that is more Eastern, and that is there's a time in many ancient cultures around 3 a.m., between 3, 4, 5 a.m. In Buddhism, it's called the, the dreams of the void. In India, it's a very mystical time, sacred time. In Kabbalah, yeah. it's called the time of the prophets. And so I wake up at 3 a.m. naturally, and I do the exercise we just did for the things that I want to have in my day. I'd love to have a wonderful call. If I have a presentation to do, I could see it done. If I have to be somewhere, if I have to, if I know that I'm going to drive a long distance or be short on quote time, I see myself arriving on time. And I do that exercise that we just did repeatedly from about 3 to 5 a.m. I keep it on a small recorder near my bed and I listen to myself, take myself through it. And if you fall asleep and pass out, good. Right. Then whatever it is about your brain, your higher self is taking it and running with it, right? Who knows what's happening with that aspect of our brain when we're dreaming our lives in advance and then letting our higher self do the rest. Absolutely. It's, um, it's amazing how easily accessible those higher brain waves are. I mean, we're with someone who knows what they're doing, which I appreciate, but I feel like just by virtue of closing my eyes and allowing the breath to pass through, immediately you're somewhere else and it's a subtle it's a subtle transformation but it's a very meaningful transformation i think it's just so inspiring to know that that's there you know waiting for you if you're willing to make the the effort and build it into your day it's awesome well and we talked about being intentional so instead of being frenetic during the day when we're intentional interactions and we're remembering the experiences that we talked about a moment ago we can move into a brainwave state where that really works. Sit yourself down. I've done this in ladies' rooms, closets, you know, myself in an office, a car, where you simply close your eyes, take yourself to the breathing, get yourself in a state of focused perception, very simply done, change your brainwave state into theta or more, right? And then either appreciate the moment as it's happening to you or create a moment that you would like to happen. I want to connect dots to that exercise and a comment you had mentioned earlier, which is uh, you said, if it's in your head, some people think it's not real. If it's in your head, it's not real. So really, um, this is down to the core of imagination because you also had us imagining uh, like an end outcome. So imagination to me is something that's truly fascinating because to me, I think that you have to imagine ideas to bring them to reality. I mean, that's just how it goes. But the unfortunate thing is, and there's a fly in here, by the way, that's like really annoying. Sorry about that. But um, uh, my point is that imagination, it, it's like people might feel weird if they imagine things too much as an adult. Like it's okay as a kid because it's like part of your cognitive development, but something happens where like no, you're no allowed, you're no longer allowed to have magical thinking anymore as an adult. You kind of like labeled as weird if you imagine things or you know what I'm trying to say? Like I just think there's this element of imagination oh. that we're we're trying to touch. Well, we on need here. to let go of that. So are all those Olympic athletes and Michael Jordan and all those people who are using this intentionally in order to perform better in sports, are they, is that magical thinking? No, that's part of their life. It's part of why sports is advancing. This is being used every day in every, in every aspect of sports, in particular for better physical uh, performance, but people are using it for other aspects of their life. I'm suggesting that we use it to live lives of meaning and purpose, right? Our best possible lives. Why can't we as ordinary people just use it? Dream your life in advance. So I do these exactly. exercises. You know, I, I, 
at th between three and five in the morning and then I fall asleep. And then I get up and have a regular day, but I do something else. And that is before I get out of bed, before I turn on any lights, I remember. And how I remember is I keep something in bed with me like a crystal, right? It's a good thing to have in bed. So an amethyst or some sort of crystal. Because when I touch it, I remember that I should do something. And what I want to do is I dream my entire day in advance as though it's a ballet. So I'm going through the call. I had a call before this, which was uh, in, with, the, with people in Portland, Oregon, working with their city on social justice and racial justice. So I dreamed that call was wonderful and this call is wonderful and I'm going through my day and, oh, then I need to do a website and I'm writing a proposal through the day and I go all the way as a ballet through the day, wonderfulness, all the way to the evening where I'm relaxing and then I'm going into and have a bath maybe later at night and then I'm closing my eyes and I've lived my whole day. What have I just done to my day? I've made it really great, right? And could other things happen? Could I get a flat tire and the cat throws up and whatever happened? Sure. But am I going to be a little bit different about it? You bet. Yeah. Mm. You bet. Because I'm holding on to a brainwave state, which is more meditative, more intentional, <laughs> and more joy-filled going through my day. People can do this every day, and I highly recommend people do this every day. It's in the book, Dream Your Day in Advance. You mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that you have a background in technology, and I saw on your website, you're very interested in the effect that technology is having on society. I'm curious, are these these exercises that you develop in this sort of paradigm, can they work in tandem with a normal routine of like checking email and checking your phone? Or is the idea that, you know, over time by becoming more present and by changing your relationship with time, those kind of toxic tech behaviors will naturally fade out of your life. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Well, I have a regular Western life, which is, you know, I have 5,000 emails in my inbox and people are asking me to do all kinds of things and on Zoom and they're doing everything that everybody else is doing. With that said, I'm intentionally present. And, you know, it was once was once said, you know, this isn't new age, this is old age. And so being intentionally present, going back to India thousands of years ago, going back to Kabbalah, going back to China, going back to you know, uh, Sufi, all of the ancient traditional spiritual practices are all about being present, basically, in some sense. Hmm. So to bring that presentness forward into our Western lives, that's something we could do. Here's something to imagine. Imagine you go into a coffee house, a Starbucks, and you would go in today and people are complaining and they're upset and they're, you know, doing all kinds of things. Imagine that's not true anymore. They're all talking about the wonderful things that are going to happen to them as a result of doing the exercise that we just hmm. did. Yeah. Imagine a world, right, where everybody's talking about all the wonderful things that could happen. Boy, that changes a few things. It's what we focus on. That's the story, how we show up. If we show up from a place of fear, anger, overwhelmed, bummed out, stressed out, and hopeless, then that's what we're going to experience. If we show up from a place of hope and change and, and magnanimous and for the benefit of all, I simply think... Although we don't know how it works yet, it's going to impact our experience of the physical world. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we agree with that. Um, going back to feelings and emotions and a word that's come up several times in the conversation is fear. Uh, fear, I, I think, is one of those emotions where we put a lot of our attention to it. So you, you mentioned like, you know, what happens is you, you put a perception to something, you put your attention to something, and that's what you really think about. Too often, we're not really thinking about all the times we're happy. We're usually thinking about the times we're fearful or, or worried. 
But what else makes fear and worry different than other feelings? I do talk about that in the book, and I believe it's a brainwave state. And so it's believed through research that fear starts in the back of the brain, the amygdala, moves forward to the prefrontal cortex, right, travels through the brain. While it's doing that, it's lighting up your body. It is making your heart go faster, your pulse go faster, your muscles can contract, all kinds of things, right? That's a state. That does not seem like a very conducive state for what we just did, which would be right. a theta brainwave state, right, which is one of relaxation and focus. So that's fear and worry. But, I, but as I talk about in the book, the many experiences of people who have, who've had slowed down time, none of them experienced fear, although they all were in extreme danger. So I posit that there's a difference between danger and fear. Danger is an innate sense. Fear is a brainwave state. And we don't know exactly how it's different, although I'm sure it's being studied. So for me, with these people, just the anecdotal information, there are car crashes and gunfights, and I myself drove right through a bicycle, and all kinds of things happened, which would be really, you know, potentially fearful, but they weren't. Time slowed down. I was able to control, and everyone else in the book, many, many stories, control their experiences in this slowed down brainwave state, which I do not believe was an illusion, right? Because they were able to do things that they otherwise would not be able to do. And a different brainwave state took over. So what we want to do is we want to remove fear from the equation. And I actually talk about this in the book as an exercise. Imagine the exercise we just did. Imagine you're really afraid of something. You're afraid of a conversation with someone who hates you. You're afraid of the review of your boss. You're afraid of a presentation where you think the technology will go out. So what you do is you, you, you go through the exercise just like we did. And instead of living the wonderful experience that you just had, live the fear to the nth degree. Be one with it. All of the terrible things could happen. Have it just be so awful. Live it, live it, live it. And then say to yourself, oh, that's not what happened. Wait a minute. Right. Call reversing. Oh, that's not what happened. That presentation went perfect. That conversation was great. Say to yourself, and what you're doing is you're changing how you will show up in the future for that situation in your mind to, to definitely change you. Does it change the other person? Well, here's a question. If you were to walk into a room of neutral people and you were furious or extremely sad and you didn't say one word, do you think they could sense that? 100%. they can. Yeah. People can sense that all the time. So you're showing up to the situation with someone and you've had a terrible argument with them or they hate you. And now you're different because you've already lived it and it didn't happen that way. Are you going to be different? Sure. Are they going to be different? Yeah, they may well. Hmm. Have we just affected a physical outcome? Yes. By how we've showed up to the situation in our minds. Again, this is where physics meets psychology, right? For daily life. Absolutely. Reading your book, it made me think like how much the body is sort of the medium through which your mind shapes the universe. So the idea like your, your, your mind can't shape reality. It's like, well, it does every single day. Maybe your body is the medium through which you do it, but like we're creating reality in every second of every day with our actions and where our actions and choices originate from, we still don't know. So there's this mystery um, that's just baked into physical reality. At least that's the way it seemed to me. Well, and what if that what if that mystery is explained by quantum mechanics? What if there's quantum biology? What if and I end I end the book with quantum consciousness, right? What about if that's how it all really works? There's some plane where where the observer effect is collapsing reality for all of what's going on, right? There's something beyond what we know, and our brains are actually comprised that way. 
we may not think this, you know, quantum mechanics has been around and we know a little bit about it. It affects every aspect of our life. It allows this call to happen today. It's behind computers and lasers and everything else. Quantum mechanics right there, right? But there's this, this feeling that it doesn't affect our everyday life. Well, that's not true either. Last month in Physics Magazine, there was another experiment showing quantum entanglement for the real world. Now, just for uh, listeners who may not be up on it, quantum entanglement is where when you have a particle and uh, you divide the particle and it has some aspect, let's call it blue. You know, it's not that, but it, let's call it a blue particle. And you leave one particle in, our, in your office and you take another particle into outer space. If you do something, if you observe something about the particle that's in your office, the particle in outer space spontaneously, immediately, instantly changes to match it. Now, yeah. how's that possible? First of all, you've just defied the speed of light. Mm. <laughs> number one. Number two, what's really going on here? And number three, this isn't science fiction. This is happening today. These part, there are particles in space where they're experimenting with in terms of quantum entanglement. And bigger and bigger and bigger. So I believe that world is going to move up into our big world where we finally connect the two and have an appreciation of what's really going on here. Something way beyond our imagination because we haven't, we haven't experienced it or discovered it yet. Hmm. And that goes hand in hand with Roger Penrose, the physicist that you talk about in the book, right? Because he talks about this in context of what Einstein discovered. And he was just talking about like, there are molecular structures in the human brain that alter their state as a response to some sort of quantum event. I just really find some of this stuff mind bending and kind of hard to wrap my mind around. Just imagine if we can clarify this and make it easier for people to understand, then we can really make strides in this, in, in our existence. Um, it's, it's just fascinating mind, mind bending stuff that we're talking about right now. Well, and we, you know, it, it we are we want to explain the world in terms of science and data, right? And physical things. With that said, there's so much that's unexplainable. We talked about before, what if all the things we think of as supernatural are simply out of phase of time and they could be explained by time, mm. by being in a different time moment, right? Like a different moment back or forward. That's why you can't see them. And what I really think about is this, considering the amazing complexity of the universe and what we've talked about, the existence of matter and energy and multiple dimensions, there's something way beyond Galileo and Einstein in our existence. That's a reality beyond which we can see. That's what I think is really wonderful to think about, which to me suggests the quantum realm, right? And one day we will understand that as a reality. Today, we can do practices. We can read about the latest science. We can, if of all the things we could manipulate, it's probably time would be the easiest rather than have a pickle show up in your lap or an airplane in your backyard. You know, let's fool around with time. And that may be the key to everything in terms of matter. And on the way there, we'll probably have much richer experiences in our day-to-day. -day. Uh, so time, I think, is an excellent starting point. Really makes sense uh, as a subject we should all be thinking more about right now because it affects all of us. It's totally universal. As you mentioned earlier, a lot of us pre-pandemic were struggling with time. You know, if we can get time right, we can get, I think, our relationship with our own lives right. And it's something we have control over. So for all those reasons, I think it's just such an important thing to spend more time thinking about. There's one other question I wanted to ask you. Can you talk about coincidences and the phenomenon of multiple independent discoveries? When you were talking about that in the book, I found that super fascinating. So for example, in the 18th century, oxygen was discovered by both Carl 
uh, Skeely and Joseph Priestley around 1774. In the 19th century, the first law of thermodynamics was theorized by three different individuals at the same time. And the Big Bang Theory was developed independently by both Alexander Friedman and Georges Lemaitre. I might be pronouncing that last name completely <laughs> wrong. But my point is that you you actually share examples of multiple independent discoveries and the uh, concept of coincidence. So if you could just share your insight on that, I think that um, that will help us a lot. Well, so before we jump into uh, quantum entanglement, let's imagine that the universe is a giant quantum soup, right? And we all know that nothing and no one is solid, right? You look down at, at something with an electron microscope, smaller and smaller and smaller, an electron would be here, right? The, the nucleus and the, the outer banks would be where the sun is. Right. So every there's space everywhere, but there's some quantum soup. So in that quantum soup, things are happening in this quantum mechanics. And what about a quantum entanglement, which we already know is real for the quantum world? And as I said, it's just been measured in our real world with a particle on Earth and in space. What about if thoughts are that? And so in some sort of quantum entanglement, people spontaneously in this quantum soup have the same thought at the same time. Right. Instantaneously across light. Right. Faster than the speed of light and are thinking these thoughts. We don't know where thoughts come from or what they are. Do they emanate from our brains? Are they part of this quantum mechanics, right? So that would be Roger Penrose, quantum consciousness, right? Are we swimming around in the quantum soup and one of them hits us and then it, it becomes our thought? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> Who knows? Right. Clearly, there probably is a quantum soup. There's a quantum haze. There's a quantum fog, right? There's the Higgs boson field, right, with all of its names of all of these stuff that builds up you know, uh, dark matter, right? Everything that fills up space, space is 90% empty. What's there? Well, maybe that's true for us as well. All of us are not solid. What's in the middle of all of us? And that allows us to experience quantum mechanics and maybe even quantum entanglement as thoughts. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. one of the deepest conversations we've had. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, isn't it? Imagine <laughs> all of this, you know, and then back to being allowed to imagine the thing, of, the thing that I wanted about the book is for it to be scientifically valid, right? And it is scientifically right. valid. Now, are some of these theories, and in science, if it is not disproven, it's possibly real, right? It has right. to be accepted as possible. So all of the theories in the book have not been disproven. They're possibly real. They're scientifically valid. It's the latest science, and it allows you to dream of a universe where all of these things are possible. And I'll tell you what happens. I work with people and I speak to them and they get back to me, you know, a week or a month later. And they say to me, Lisa, it happened. I dropped the wine glass and I didn't descend into fear. And I saw it in slow motion and I caught it by the stem. Wow. <laughs> right. Slowing yeah, the game I, down. I needed, Slowed it down. <laughs> I, need, I needed to be at sailing practice to pick up my child. And I was, you know, I would have been afraid that they'd been alone because it was raining and I saw myself arriving on time, and I have no idea what happened. Mm. And I did. Who yeah. knows? We can't, you know, these things we can't explain. What we, do to, what we do do is we pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and go on like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Well, don't yeah, do like that. this is all normal. Said, be intentional. <laughs> <laughs> be intentional. That wine glass was in slow motion. That was not an illusion, mm -hmm. right? You arrived too, too, too quickly to have to have left when you left and picked up your child in time and everything is great. The check came and it was just mailed yesterday from Chicago. How do these things happen? Well, let's be intentional about them. Wonder if there's a world which we can't explain yet, right? And apply practices to lead the lives we want to live of meaning and purpose now. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I talked to that you've been studying dreams and dream imagery for 15 years. It's incredibly been a long amount of time. I'm curious, have you thought much about like the passage of time in dreams? Because that's a realm where time seems to be doing really funny things as well. And especially, you know, looking back on it in the morning when you're in a different state, it's hard to really know how much time passed and the events blur together in unusual ways or ways that are not consistent with our waking consciousness. So I'm just curious, have you applied uh, much of what you've discovered in the book and writing the book over the last few years to your study into dreams? Yes. There's one thing to talk about in terms of dreams, and that is dream uh, study. being able to study your dreams takes a little bit of practice, and here's why. And in, in particular, in our Western lives, we bolt out of bed and brushing our teeth and run off and don't really think about what happened last night. I, as I mentioned, I, I dream my day in advance intentionally before I get out of bed. But in working with Dr. Jerry Epstein, who was, the, who was the dream doctor, I started to do a practice many decades ago. Keep a small book or a pad by your bed and keep a pen and set the intention that you're going to write down a dream that you have, right? And so, and also what I do at night, I never turn on the lights. I keep a small flashlight. As we closed our eyes in the meditation, don't change your brain chemistry back into serotonin from melatonin. Keep it in the place it was. Do not turn on the lights right? If you need to go somewhere, use a flashlight. So if you have a dream in the middle of the night and you remember that your pad is there and it's nearby and you can keep a totem in bed with you, again, crystals are a great thing, an amethyst or green calcite or, you know, any of these other, there are stones that are, again, it's wonderful to have in bed with you. When you, when you touch it, you'll remember that you have the pad by your bed. So then you drive down, your, you write down your dream. And don't write down the whole dream. Just write down a word. Write down car. I had a dream about a car recently. And so I was taught with Dr. Jerry Epstein, cars are life direction. So I had a dream about a car and the car was going someplace and it was a new car and it was driving up a mountain and it was wonderful. I know how to interpret that for myself because all dreams should be interpreted by people, I believe, and they're of their own framework. But first of all, begin to write down your dreams. Here's a tip also, and that is you can take a small amount of vitamin B6, 50 milligrams before you go to sleep. Now, of course, do not do this without the advice of your doctor. With that said, if you wanted to take 50 milligrams of vitamin B6, it helps with lucid dreams and with remembering your dreams. So you can do that, and then you're, and now you have an intention. And if you begin to do this, what you will notice is that you will remember more dreams. You'll remember them more vividly. You know, I have journals going back uh, 30 years wow. of dreams that I've had every single day. And if I don't remember the dream, I simply write down something lovely, right? And I have a date because I'm keeping my intention. It doesn't take much. It takes a moment. But as we talked about the intentionality of our lives, and then, Jay, when you start to do that, you can start to think about time in dreams. Because number one, you're going to remember your dreams more. You're going to begin to remember your dreams more vividly. You're going to begin to be lucid in your dreams. Lucid in your dreams is where you say to yourself, wow, I'm at the zoo and I'm dreaming. This is fabulous, right? I can, I can control the elephant who I'm about to ride, whatever yeah. it is. You're, you're upping the game in terms of your dreams. And then there's all kinds of spiritual traditions around dreams. In Buddhism, which I've studied, Buddhism has a, a theory of dreams, which is there are two types of dreams. The types of dreams at the first part of the night, the first three hours, are called dreams of karma. 
that's where your boss may have the face of a rhinoceros and he's chasing you around, trying to run you down because you don't like him very much or he doesn't like you. Hmm. You're working out what happened during the day. After 3 a.m., which is when I, go, I am up and then I go to sleep, are dreams of the void. These are the prophetic dreams. These are the dreams that if you remember and write down, you may know the direction of your life for the next years if you start to write them down just for a couple of months by how your dreams are going. Are they lovely and expansive? Are you seeing new people? What are you presenting? Are you going somewhere? Writing all of these down. And because you're writing them down with intentionality, they'll become more vivid and more well-remembered. So it all works into one another. Phenomenal. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, so that's a great way to segue into the fact that we did have a conversation with Dr. Antonio Zadra on his book, When Brains Dream. So if anyone's interested, go check that episode out. But Lisa, this has been a fantastic conversation. I know that this is one that I have to listen to twice to capture it all. Last question for you, not related to quantum physics, but uh, maybe it is, who knows? Uh, if you could be an animal, any animal, what would you be and why? I'd be an eagle. When I was in Sedona, where I moved, uh, I moved from Sedona here to, uh, to, um, in, uh, to Lake Tahoe. Uh, there were many eagles around. And they're very, very family-oriented. They build mm. nests. And they're beyond a, beyond a symbol of freedom. They are um, they're looking down and watching, right? And plus, they have the ability to fly. I just think that it is that ability. I've always wanted that ability. And we talk about dreams. Flying in dreams is very significant, right? If you're flying in your dreams, you're really doing well. And so I've had those dreams of flying many times. And it's an unbounded nature that's godlike. And so if I could be a bird and fly around and still be familial, right? Like the eagle, right. Right. That, uh, I think that would be quite, quite um, spectacular. Yeah, that's a very thoughtful answer. That's great. Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the contribution. Again, the book is called All the Time in the World, Learn to Control Your Experience of Time to Live a Life Without Limitations. It is going to be available on Amazon starting October 26th. And um, yeah, this is a fantastic time together. The time puns are infinite. Oh, another time pun. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone go master your time, master yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, you can sign up for the Rising Weekly newsletter sent out each week. Every Friday, we expand on the episode with insights, recommendations, and more. You can sign up at risingladderly.com. Thank you.